Ever wonder the true power of sports? Well, you come to the right place. Welcome to the Sports for Social Impact podcast. I'm David Thibodeau, and I believe that by exploring the intersection between sport and society, we can better leverage the sport industry for maximum impact. We explore what sports true power is to understand the impacts on and the impacts of sports on society. Join me as we learn how sports can influence important policy areas such as the environment, transportation, education, and so much more. So we have two little pieces of news for everybody today. The first is uh, actually comes from December 1st, 2022, and it comes from the United Nations. So during the 77th session in the 43rd meeting, of the General Assembly of the United Nations, they adopted a text that highlights the transformative power of sport to achieve peace and sustainable development. So against the backdrop of global conflicts, economic uncertainty, and and climate change, the General Assembly recognizes the power of sport to expand sustainable development and inspire young people around the planet with the adoption of a consensus resolution. So adopting this text, which is called uh, Sport as an Enabler for Sustainable Development, Delegates laid out the ways in which sport can be used to help young people improve their lives while generating cooperation among nations. I do find some of these United Nations resolutions good. I find that, you know, obviously we need to have this language and this, this, these ideals to live up to, but I find that they have difficulty filtering down to the level, you know, to the nation state level. Um, You know, it's great for countries to talk about this and, and, you know, that they agree with it and vote in favor of it. But then when they're not actually implementing policies at the national level, um, you know, what's the point of having it at the UN level? But so ho- hopefully it, hopefully they step in up more and, and talk about this a little bit more. So the second piece of news comes from the International Olympic Committee. So everyone knows that, or you, you've probably heard the criticism of the Olympics that they, you know, they're very costly, you know, all these new buildings, the new venues are are extremely expensive to build. And then uh, you've probably heard a lot of times that uh, the, that the buildings and venues are left in disrepair. You know, they're not, no, they're no longer in use. And it's a really big criticism of the Olympics and they can't seem to shake that, that image. So the International Olympic Committee uh, just came out with a, you know, a, a new study and report on uh, post-games use of Olympic venues. So they looked at the last 125, you know, last 125 years since the start of the modern Olympics. So they looked uh, for right from the start from Athens in 1896, all the way up to uh, Pyeongchang in 2018. So it's quite interesting to, to look at. So there, in total, there was 923 Olympic venues, 89% of that was permanent venues and 11% of that were temporary venues. So of the permanent of the permanent Olympic venues, 85% are still in use and 15% are not in use. So this is about 35 venues that are not still in use. So there were um, 817 permanent venues, for, you know, created for the Olympics from 1896 up until 2018, and 35 of them 
are no longer in use. Um, and this report is actually quite interesting. It go it then it it then goes down into each uh, iteration of the Olympics and looks at the the venues. So it goes, you know, Athens eighteen ninety six venues. So it talks about venue classification. So there was fifty percent existing, thirty seven percent new, and thirteen percent temporary. So now it says then it goes current use for the permanent venues for the 1896 venues. Um so from 1896, 86% of them are in use and 14% of them are not in use for the permanent venues. So it's just really interesting. I think uh it, you know it's quite a long document, but it it's quite extensive and it's um I, I think it's really interesting to look at. So that is all the news for today. And we will get back to this episode that I'm very excited about. So I first saw my guest today at COP27. At uh, she, she was moderating a panel on financing active transport. And it was just very interesting. And I thought it would be a really great opportunity to have her on the podcast. So I'm very excited that she said yes to being on the podcast. Um, so my guest today is Dentian Van Van Holden. She is the Vice President and Regional Director for Europe, and she's based in Europe Regional Office in The Hague. She's been a prominent politician in the Netherlands, most recently serving as the member of Cabinet responsible for public transport and environment, and as a minister for the environment and, and, and housing. Um, I love her passion and her enthusiasm for um, active transport, and I was really excited to have her on to talk about this. Um, especially given her experience as the Minister for Transport in, you know, what people, you know, sort of I, I idolize as a cycling nation. So the World Resources Institute is a global research nonprofit working on six critical goals that the world must achieve in order to secure a sustainable future. Climate, energy, food, forests, water, and cities and transport. So I'm very, I'm very excited for you to all listen to this, this podcast episode. I think it's a really great conversation. And um, I was very excited to learn more about, um, you know, uh, climate financing and financing active mobility. All right. So welcome today to my guest, Cynthia Van Velhoven. I'm super excited to have you on today to talk about active transport. Um, she's a former politician in the Netherlands, a cabinet member responsible uh, and former cabinet member member responsible for public transport and the environment, uh, vice and current vice president and regional director for Europe at the World Resource Institute. Thank you so much to, uh, for coming on today to talk about after transport. Um, could you just take a quick second to introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I mean, active mobility is uh, one of the two topics that I actually chose as a priority when I was a minister in the Dutch uh, government. Um, and over the past 10 years that I've been working in uh, in, in politics, uh, before I joined WRI as a member of parliament, um, and now at WRI, I'm so happy to be working on this topic because if we look at the world's big challenges, climate change, biodiversity loss, but also inequity, I really feel that active mobility has so much to offer on all of these accounts. And that is why I've been working on this for the past 10 years. Awesome. And yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, active transport can solve so many different issues. We had an episode on <clears throat> specifically about that earlier in the, in the, in the season for the podcast, and it was by far the longest episode. So super interesting and super ha happy to have you on about how we can specifically finance uh, active transport in our cities and in our, in our countries around the world. So 
Um, I first, you know, heard you speak and you were moderating a panel at COP27 on, on financing active mobility at the European Investment Bank Pavilion. And you, you, know, you floated this idea of a $1 billion fund for active mobility. So I'm just curious to know how exactly you see this, this would take place and how exactly you think it would work. Yeah, well, like a fund, if you want to know specifically how that fund could work, um, that could be, for example, in, in uh, uh, with multilateral financial organization that could provide accessible funding and high level technical support also for walking and cycling projects in, in 20 to 30 cities located in lower middle income countries. Right. So that was the concept of that fund. Um, but of course, next to next to the technicalities of that fund, the reason why we need that fund is actually to make financing of active mobility more easy. Because we see that while actually there are so many benefits to active mobility, traditionally, uh, both financing institutions, but also uh, investing countries, both in the global north and in the global south, are dedicating their, uh, their infrastructure investments to motorized transport. And uh, uh, even also in the Netherlands, everybody considers the Netherlands as a as like we were born as a cycling country. Uh, well, that's only partial true, right? Uh, yes, we learned to cycle at a young age, but it also has requested and demanded uh, really purposeful investments in cycling infrastructure over, over a longer time. Um, and even now in the government that I was part of, uh, I got a budget of a hundred million to invest in cycling infrastructure, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually very little. Uh, right, uh, and only now the government has gone to uh, a one billion amount of investments in cycling infrastructure, and so even in in countries like the Netherlands, we still see that there's a need to ramp this up, and therefore we feel that this fund could enable governments worldwide to come to those investments in active mobility since they generate so many co-benefits. That's funny to hear you say that you only had a budget of a hundred million for I think that was for a, a, a year. Because I know I was just talking about, I was looking at some of the budgets for some of the municipal, you know, cities here in Canada, and you know, fifty million, hundred million. So I guess, I guess we're not that bad compared to, um, you know, you know, the uh, cycling country like the Netherlands, um, in terms of budget. But yes, I totally agree. You know, it's in the, it's a kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of the whole budget overall that governments have. Um, I did try to be smart about spending that in, in co-financing uh, uh, other budgets, right? So we, we made much more of it. Uh, but in the end, it is true that the budget was relatively small compared to to basically the potential of these investments, right? So I'm happy now, of course, to see that the potential is being stepped up. But I'd love other countries also to utilize more of that potential. And so this idea of a fund really would be to also enable other other countries to take that step and get those co-benefits of investing in active mobility. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And so, you know, we're talking about the government side of it, but what what, what do you see for what what role do you see for private financing in active mobility? Is there a place for it? Like, would it fit into this fund, or how, how exactly would it? Do you think that would work? Well, apart from from let's say an exact design for a fund, there in all the big challenges that we are facing today, we see there is a need for also a smart collaboration between public and private finance, uh, because there will always be there will never be enough public finance. So if we want to get through this transition, we will always need to reflect on a smart way to connect those public funds to private funds. And I think also if you look at what this um, this, this fund could do, uh, and, and if you look at the co-benefits of investing in active mobility, um, for example, developers may actually be very interested in having, let's say, a beautiful environment in the context where they are developing their new buildings. 
but also you could reflect on public-private partnerships with local corporations looking to boost active mobility as part of uh, cycle-to-work schemes, for example, something very common also, again, in, uh, in, in some Western European countries. Um, uh, green bonds by financial institutions can be a very interesting way for the private sector to invest also over a longer period. So I think, and then of course the investments when they are made, right, somebody needs to build it. And so there is a need also for, for private companies to be involved in actually creating that uh, infrastructure for active mobility. Uh, so there are all ways in which uh, the combination between public and private sector will be crucial also in developing uh, all of the co-benefits which uh, which which it could, could deliver. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think that's, that's really interesting because I think, at least when <clears throat> I think about it normally, um, I think that, you know, because it's a public infrastructure that it should be funded by, you know, by governments as a public good um, and, you know, as a, as a form of, I guess, public transit, trans, transportation almost. Um, so it's interesting to hear that, uh, that you really believe that private financing should be part of this and, and can be part of it. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, now that I think about it more, I, I definitely agree with you that, it, that we there's more space and there's a lot more opportunity for private, for private financing in the active mobility world. Um, so yeah, totally, totally love to hear that from you. So why do you think that governments, from you know, from your perspective, why should governments care about active mobility and why should they finance it? Yeah, I must say, I, I basically always told my colleagues that I saw active mobility as kind of the secret weapon, right? Because it's it's um, it's a way of investing in reduction of greenhouse gases. Of course, everybody will see that a bike doesn't emit any greenhouse gases, whereas a car does, right? But even beyond that, if you think about the the cost of congestion at this point of time in cities around the world, that cost is huge. And why is there congestion? It is because cars take up a lot of space in the cities. Uh, we've calculated for the Netherlands, I think, one bike equaled so one car equal 26 bikes, right? So the amount of congestion, the amount of traffic that you can actually generate in a city when using active mobility, because of course walking is even much more dense. Uh, the, the difference is huge. And if you consider that in, in Lagos, Nigeria, residents are estimated to lose a collective 3 billion hours per year to traffic congestion, equaling a total cost of, of 1 billion US dollars, that, that, that is real money, right? And if you can invest it, and active mobility and take away some of that congestion is a huge economic benefit. Think about the health costs. Think about all of also the social costs of all of the air pollution that generates health costs for the system, but also all of the personal uh, suffering, basically. If you even look at a country like the Netherlands, and sorry for using those examples, but it's because of my previous function that I know them well, one in five children with asthma in the Netherlands has this asthma because of air pollution. If you take away the air pollution, you take away this burden for these kids that they carry around with them for the rest of their life. And so investing in active mobility also helps reduce that air pollution and it helps therefore also lowering both burden on people but also healthcare costs. Um, and then even for those that need to be on the road because not everybody is at a distance that they can cycle or walk, um, there was again in the Netherlands big support for all of those people that do not need to be off the road to get off the road so that those that do not have a choice can actually uh, have their traffic time be reduced to normal traffic times. So it benefits everybody, both those that have to be on the road as those don't have to be on the road and the people living in those cities. And it helps for climate uh, and it just creates more space in cities. Do we really want to build all of those car parks or do we want to create parks 
where kids can play. That is a vision. That's a, a, a difference in vision. What do you want to achieve in your city? Um, anyway, so like I said, a secret weapon for actually many uh, questions, many dilemmas that mayors and, and, and governments and, and, and city planners are actually struggling with these days. I love that. That is a secret weapon. I, I think that is I think that is awesome to think about it in that way. And I think, you know, it really, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's almost like a silver bullet. It just, it, it can tackle so many different policy, um, so many policy uh, issues that the governments are trying to face. And um, I don't know from your experience in government, if you think that, um, that governments are sometimes like too siloed in their departments, like from, I, I, I'm a policymaker, I work for the government, but I'm not a politician. Um, but you know, when and if, so, sort of like an outsider kind of looking into the way the government functions, um, you know, each government, ha or the, the departments, immigration, transportation, environment, like everything's very siloed. So do you think that's a a gap still that we still need to try to bridge those silos a little bit more? Um, or or do you think that we're doing a really good job already at, at having, you know, all these different departments work together? Well, I think in every country there's room for improvement. And uh, let's say the amount of improvement depends on the country, right? So, uh, uh, um, but like I said, for, for a while, I had the responsibility for both uh, spatial planning and transport investments, uh, and, and also for housing. And so that allowed me that integration, and whether you have that integration under one person responsible or whether you have that integration through good collaboration, that doesn't matter. But integrating those, those questions actually means that we got to concepts of densifying, build, building quite a dense new quarter of living quarters in a given part of, of The Hague, and really reflecting on, so what is the transport that we want those people that want to live in that area, what is the kind of transport mode that we're actually offering them? If you want to live in the city center, you also choose not to have your car there, right? Your choice, if you choose that apartment, your choice then is to use active mobility as your means to get to the city center, and you don't, you no longer basically have a car in your garage, you actually have uh, a high speed train, you know, next door to you, which you can use uh, if you want to move out of the city. And maybe you'll still use, use a car or rent a car for when you want to go and visit your parents or relatives or friends in the countryside, right? Not everything can be done by active mobility, but to actively think about those integrated concepts of living and transportation and spatial planning enables to get to those concepts where there's actually a win-win-win. So some of those uh, apartment buildings, people no longer got a, a parking permit, they were no longer eligible for a parking permit, but they did buy a subscription to a shared car as part of the apartment that they bought. So the integration and the of these kind of questions will help getting active mobility also off the ground. And I think that is something where, um, uh, where a lot can be can be solved also in questions that sometimes seem conflicting, but if you look at them from an integral perspective, there's actually very exciting opportunities for also improving those beautiful cities where so many people live. Yeah, I think that um, yes, I love how you integrated all the your all of your different policy files together. I think that's you know so amazing to hear. I think that politicians and cabinet ministers can definitely do more of that um, all around the world. So I think that's you know a really great example and really good inspiration for. For a lot of people um and yeah i i think that's a really great um i guess segue into the next question that i had so if you had any advice for politicians and policymakers around the world for building and expanding active transport 
infrastructure. So I know that, you know, sometimes it's very controversial, right? You're taking spaces away from cars, um, you know, very, very controversial. It gets a lot of emotions going in a lot of people. Um, what kind of advice would you have for, for people, for politicians? I would say, don't be afraid to create a better city. Because yeah. it starts with your vision of you, what this city can actually be for all of those people. And then of course, it's important to create clear transition pathways, right? And involve people in finding those new solutions. Um, and there's many bad practices and good practices in, 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 in cities in Europe, for example. Uh, we've all made the, the mistakes uh, that there are to make too. So let's learn from each other. But please don't be afraid to create that city that you can imagine for the future uh, and start to work on that. Use ambassadors and create clear transition pathways uh, so that people also have the time to adapt, but reap the benefits, use this secret weapon. I love that. And I think that, you know, we really kind of saw that start, starting to take place in during the COVID pandemic and, you know, sort of some of the lockdowns and, um, you know, some cities, you know, shutting down or you know, shutting down streets to the cars, but opening them up to people um, and after transport. So I think, you know, we started seeing little nippets of it coming from you know, cities all around the world. I know Paris has put a lot of money into um, after transport so that, you know, politicians are really transforming the way their cities operate through active transport. And I think it's it's really, really amazing. So uh, Stincia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I have one last question for you, and it's if you have any messages that you'd like to pass on to everybody listening. Any last messages, I guess. Well, I would say do it yourself. Um, when we had a poll after the COVID uh, pandemic and we asked people, did you miss your, your daily commute? I think 90% of people traveling by car said, no, didn't miss it for a second. I think 75% uh, of people cycling and walking said, yes, I missed my daily exercise, my daily commute of being outside, emptying my mind while I went to work and I went back. So um, I just, my advice would be try it yourself. You'll love it. Awesome. Thank you so much for this. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you about this. Thank you once again to Stancia for taking the time to speak with me today. I think her passion and her enthusiasm for this topic really comes through in this interview and and you know it made me really excited and made me much more interested uh, to be talking about active transport and financing active transport. Now, my two, my two key takeaways from this episode um, are, you know, first that we need a more integrated approach to policy objectives. So, you know, as we were talking about, you know, so not the silos, so getting out of those silos, breaking down those barriers, you know, thinking about things as in a holistic way. My second key takeaway is that we need to, you know, it, this conversation reminded me of a quote. Uh, so the quote is, the main thing that we seem to need for a cycling revolution is imagination. So I really like, when, you know, when she's talking about how, you know, we can transform our cities through cycling. You know, so when we're thinking about after, you know, financing active transport, we can also think, you know, we're financing health. We're financing urban design. We're financing uh, tackling climate change. So it's not just financing active mobility. It's not just financing, you know, transportation. 
but it's financing all these different aspects. And I think that's important to keep in mind. We need to imagine the city that the cities, the communities, the society that we want to live in. The secret weapon is cycling. It can solve or help solve many, many, many of the issues that we are facing today. We just require a little imagination. So thank you everybody for listening to my this episode today. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, um, and I hope you all did too. That's it for today. Thank you, and we will talk with you next time.